Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Scholarly Communication, the podcast about how knowledge gets known. I'm Daniel Shea, your host for episode 131 of the podcast. Today, I'll be talking with Rachel Cayley, Associate Professor in the Graduate Center for Academic Communication at the University of Toronto, Canada. Rachel also blogs. Her Explorations of Style is a wide-ranging discussion of topics associated with graduate writing. Today we'll be talking about her book, Thriving as a Graduate Writer, Principles, Strategies, and Habits for Effective Academic Writing. The book was published by the University of Michigan Press in 2023. You know what I really like about today's book? The book takes a step back to consider what is going on generally that writing for graduate students specifically should be so hard and so difficult. And then the book zooms in to the specifics It offers real and workable strategies and habits, the sort that will motivate graduate writers to write early and revise long, to handle their semicolons with care, and to adjust their writing habits to the type of person that they are outside of the activity of writing. Now, I like all of this very much, but I like it even more for these two reasons. One, academic writing gets increasing attention these days, But this book is not a rehash of what others are saying. No, instead, the book takes what others say, and the book says it in a way clearer than I've heard it said anyway. Really, the book actually explains why what other people are saying is mostly true. And even better still, the book also clearly lives on Rachel Cayley's own deep experience in guiding graduate writers, as well as her own deep thinking about academic writing in general. In other words, the perspective and the findings of the book are unique. And then, now for that second reason I like the book even more, well, again, it is the fact that the book steps back and considers. And the book does this in earnest. What I am saying is, the consideration given to a graduate student's context and person and thinking and emotions, it's not superficial, not just in passing, but serious. For example... I am looking here in the book, on page 7, at a table, five columns by four rows. The table represents a transformation in mindsets which the book aims to effect in graduate students, and the success of this transformation seems to me all the likelier for the fact that the transformation begins, in the leftmost column, at an incisive assessment of how a graduate student will view academic writing but then goes through a reframing, a re-evaluating, a shift in views, so that over there in the rightmost column, that same graduate student now views academic writing differently. Let me show you what I mean. In the top row, in the left-hand column, you read the graduate student saying, I feel like I should already know how to write my research. And that is a view on their writing that sees themselves as unprepared for using the technique of writing in order to do research. 
But now that view gets reframed. The view now notices that, in fact, as the student's knowledge grows in an area of the research, so too grows that same student's ability to write about the area. And so this presumed lack of preparation becomes really a phase of intellectual and professional development. Wow, things are looking very new and very fresh, because the graduate student who'd called themselves unprepared now decides to become committed to the work to develop both mentally and personally so that they transform into an actual researcher in their field of study, which discovery leads them in the end, in the right-hand column, to be saying now, hey, graduate writing is just an ongoing learning process, just like any other, and since it's at the core of what I do and who I want to become, I'm just going to have to dedicate myself to improving in it. Well, actually, I'm just going to have to learn it, as I am learning all the research techniques and research content which are making me into a professional at this stuff. That, I have to say, I like a lot. That is the sort of stepping back which really moves the conversation about graduate writing forward. With a book like today's, Thriving as a Graduate Writer by Rachel Cayley, a graduate writer, actually very, very many graduate writers, will first see and understand the thing they are doing, the text work and the research, so that they can care about and engage with words and wording, not only with purpose, but also with success. So let's begin today's episode, Rachel Cayley and Thriving as a Graduate Writer. Hi, Rachel. Welcome to Scholarly Communication. Hi, Daniel. Thanks for having me. As I've just said in the intro, I'm quite interested and excited also about the the new mindset that you offer at the beginning of your book. There's the, the, the ground that you cover in this book is potentially old ground. There's been quite a lot written about these uh, topics, but you don't cover it in an old way. You, you take this as an opportunity to say, okay, we still have a pro- we still have problems here for writing. We still have graduate students who are struggling in their subjects because of writing, maybe even reading. And we need to really get at the heart of this. And I, I almost want to say your your philosophy background shows because <laughs> you step you step back and you really look at the essentials. And perhaps we could just follow through within the introduction here of how this new new mindset gets gets built, how we move, for example, from an unprepared uh, state to a committed state and the others as well. Yeah. And when I developed this sort of new mindset idea, I really wanted it to be, have content in it, but also be somewhat performative. I wanted people to see that they are going to need a new mindset, that this isn't just a technical activity that you can pick up when you have some free time between your lab work and your classwork and your teaching. Um, You actually are going to have to think about academic writing as a practice that you need to know more about. So this is the new mindset that I envisioned, um, the, the reframing, the idea of, of graduate writing as developmental, difficult, possible, and communal. That was what that really speaks to me. But I also wanted people to be able to alter this table in various ways to reflect their own possible transformation. The key idea being that they were going to need a transformation. They're going to need to think about academic writing in a different way uh, in most instances, because for most people, it's a thing that they find to be thrust upon them as a necessary evil rather than a central 
uh, academic practice that they can improve at. I like that you say performative there because it it did perform before my eyes. I really did realize, aha, so unprepared can become committed. And your point there is very well taken. And it's a point that people have perhaps said in different ways, but the the real weight of it comes across the way you say it there, that this, this is not just a technical activity. Writing is not an add-on in so very many ways. And it's time that we made that apparent to the people who need to do the work to be able to use the writing and the reading for their research purposes. Yeah, and I particularly, I really struggled over this table. It went through so many different iterations as I was writing the book. And I think that the notions of of writing as developmental and communal, I think, are pretty well established. I think there's a fair amount of exploration of the idea that you have to learn how to do this and that you maybe shouldn't do it all by yourself. Um, I felt that the, the middle two ideas that, that academic writing is difficult and that it's possible uh, were really important to me to add into that framework because the difficulty is obviously not news to anybody. Everybody knows academic writing is difficult, um, but that it's difficult for everybody, that that's its core feature, uh, that you're not special for having trouble with writing um, is what I really wanted to get across, right? That everybody are having these challenges. Your professors are having these challenges. The people that you see producing beautiful research articles and monographs are having these problems. So I really wanted uh, part of that reframing language to, to contain a word like difficult, like so that it wasn't a glossy, this is all getting better, but rather there's, there's actually some fundamental feature of this that is going to hurt a little bit over time. Uh, and then really important to me was the possible idea that, um, that academic writing needs to be taken a little more seriously and seen a little more positively uh, rather than treat as something that is inherently bad, uh, because I think that I dislike that narrative of academic writing being terrible in general, uh, but I think it's particularly pernicious for graduate students who are trying to learn how to do it. I think to say to somebody, here's your task and you'll never do it, and it's basically a joke how bad everyone does it, is, um, is cynical and unpleasant um, and works against their capacity to really improve in this area. So I also wanted to uh, really emphasize uh, that it's possible to think about academic writing as something that it can be enjoyable for the reader, um, not something that just has to be an awful thicket of jargon and things, the sort of cliches that people ascribe to it. I mean, this is one of the nuances that I find you bring into the different aspects of, of graduate writing or academic writing in, in general is that, yes, this, this narrative, as you say, of well, it's just terrible anyway, or it's all jargon-filled and there's so many weeds and details and so on. I mean, so many people have talked about this. They've said that, well, academic writers are lazy. Academic writers are obfuscating. They're literally trying to do this. (laughs) I mean, that that always kind of made me laugh because (laughs) I don't think there's a lot of people out there actually trying to to do so. But but to to notice that, you know, whatever the cause... Why ever it happens to be that people think this, there's evidence for it that it's not so there's plenty of stuff that's not so good, but we need to do something about that because if we continue to just sort of expect that almost, well, that has harmful side effects. Absolutely. And it, I think, encourages the general problem, which is academic writing as something to be withstood. Uh, and I think that 
Uh, a lot of graduate students approach their writing task that way, right? I have to get through this. This is a thing that has to get done in order for me to do X, Y, or Z. Uh, but I think that even if that works, even if you do get through it um, through some sort of you know unhealthy pressure on yourself, um, I think it's not that that isn't without cost. Um, I mean, partly because the process will probably be fairly unpleasant if you're pushing yourself that way. But I think the cumulative effect of doing something over and over again and not having a sense of yourself as improving at it um, is is quite deleterious. So I, I really want people to feel that um, it is possible to get better at this. And, uh, and I think in order to think you can get better at it, you have to think that it's something that can be done well. That reminds me later in the book, uh, I think the last chapter, where you talk about, you know, one of the ways to become productive is also to to have a learning experience in your writing beyond the deadline. So, I mean, this would seem to me quite relevant to what you're saying, which which rings very true to me. My listeners will know I, I help uh, scientists write. This idea that writing is just the thing you have to do, right? As you so nicely put, it has to be withstood. And I think that that precisely is the mindset which which disables people who otherwise would be enabled to actually learn from their writing experiences more, draw more from their writing experiences. Yeah, and I think that um, so often academic writing seems like um, it has arbitrary rules. And I think when, when any time, just as human beings, when we exist in a world that we perceive as arbitrary, um, we are really inhibited. Uh, from making the kind of improvements that we need to make. Um, And so if you can start to talk about why academic writing is what it is, the work that it does, why it has evolved in the way that it has, um, students and novice academic writers can start to see themselves as in a tradition of writing, doing something, contributing to a conversation, moving something forward, using their writing as a way uh, to be part of something um, that is important for them professionally and possibly personally. Um, and rather than thinking of it as just, you know, research articles have this weird structure and I, I'm not sure how I'm supposed to do it. I know they look like this, but I don't know what that means in relation to my work. But I think that you can teach people um, to see the ways that research articles do things and connect that back to their work and make that developmental leap for them. And they can start to see, okay, I all research articles do X, my work is Y, but I can express this work in such a way that my readers will understand it, um, it coming from a place of expecting that my work will also do this uh, conventional, follow these conventional patterns. Yeah, and that, and that sort of thinking brings in a level of authenticity to the entire task and and the motivation of the task of reading and writing. Um, this idea that there are arbitrary rules, or as I so often hear amongst uh, people, even publishing scientists, well, yeah, you're supposed to. I mean, just in this word "supposed to," you have expressed this idea that you know you're following something. I I think. And I think you really speak to this idea of let's let's get involved in academic writing in a way that we are doing something with it. Chapter three is, is in my opinion, a great example of that, where you talk about voice. This is this often talked about and little <laughs> and, and so rarely understood term. You actually rephrase it as contribution, which which I very much like. 
um, basically showing that, well, as as the writer, you have then thought through what you know means. So that knowledge that you have, what does it mean? You've decided on how to say that and not just to imply it. You've even realized what you know and what your readers can learn from that. So that, in a sense, is from what, what I drew out of chapter three as being the voice or better, the contribution. And, and, and that is authentic, authentic, clearly. Yeah, I'm so glad you used the word authenticity because um, I think that is really central um, to the, the any sort of academic writing teaching uh, is just really allowing people to perceive themselves as having an authentic communicative task, uh, not just a series of hoops to jump through, but an actual desire to communicate something. Uh, and when you get, when you start to get into that, when you start to be able to say to people, what are, what is it that you want to say? Um, not just to meet certain benchmarks, but because you've been working on this thing and you love this thing and you think it's really important. Um, and that I think that um, part of what I'm looking to do without being annoying about it is to move past some of the cynicism that so many people feel around writing. Um, it's interesting to me that you mentioned chapter three. Chapter three was definitely vexing to me. I'm still not happy with it. It was absolutely the hardest chapter to write. Um, and I knew that it had to be there. I knew that it wasn't enough to just talk about your sort of general responsibilities to the reader. I wanted to break that down um, and talk about your role as an author. Um, that term, that your presence in the text, um, because as I say in the book, it is categorically uh, the most common thing for me to observe about somebody's writing is that they are, that it is in some ways writerless, right? That it feels like I'm getting a fantastic introduction to whatever sorts of science or research they are doing, um, and I'm lost in the text. And that is really hard for people to understand, right? Often when I ask those questions, in, in, we were both sitting in front of a text and I say, I just didn't understand what was happening here. I get a long verbal explanation of what was happening there, right? Because the science is often quite clear to the writer, but it's very difficult for them to conceive of themselves as needing to be in the text, needing to actually um, employ a range of devices that will allow them to say, in this paper, I will discuss A, B, and C. In order to understand A, we need to take a brief digression into studying B. You know, all the sorts of moves that we make uh, to help people stay with us, um, I think is really hard and um, really, really important for people to start recognizing. And as I say in the book, it, there is a combination of sort of modesty and inexperience that really can get in the way of doing that. Um, and, um, it, I think it's, it's so important to start that process. And, um, the reason I like to move beyond the word voice, um, which, you know, means something to a lot of people. And for some people that may be a really helpful term. Uh, but I think in my experience, it tends to make people nervous, sort of like the word narrative makes people nervous in the context of academic writing, because it seems so remote from their own experience. They don't feel they have a voice. They don't feel that they have a narrative. Uh, and while, you know, obviously, if you frame those right, they do have both of those. They need both of those things. Uh, but the terminology, I think, can be off-putting to some people. So I've been experimenting with contribution as a way of saying, are you present here? 
is the reader being continually reminded um, of what you are saying? And have you have you really thought about your own familiarity with your text, the ways that it seems so unnecessary to explain things? Um, and have you continued to force yourself to overcome that pretty natural reticence because we are so overwhelmingly familiar with our own work, especially as we move through the process of revision, we all of us start to think, like, do I really need to say that again? Um, surely they know that by now. Um, and so part of my job is just to convince people that readers don't read like that. Readers always appreciate uh, that kind of repetition and reorientation and that use of your own voice or your own authorial presence uh, in order to really articulate your contribution. So I often ask people when the last time they read an academic text that they felt was unduly repetitive. And it's often quite rare. That's not usually people's reading experience, right? Usually their reading experience is having to flip back and track things for themselves and remember what happened on page such and such so they understand what's happening on where they are now. Um, and so I'm hoping that by really pointing to people's own experience as readers, they can start to understand that um, as writers, they really are um, it required and uh, to make these kind of interventions and that the reader will be really grateful for them. Yes, those interventions and words like repetition and the fear that so many graduate uh, student writers have of that. I mean, <laughs> the scenarios you've just described are, are also very familiar to me. And I think amongst other things, this this problem that graduate student writers have in, 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 that, in that regard is, is kind of a, a, a symptom of what they think they're supposed to be doing. And I think that really brings us back to exactly this idea that writing is not a technical activity merely, right? It's so integral to the thinking that you do in your subject matter. So you even say in the exact same chapter, chapter three there, that you know, there's a difference between learning the elements of your subject matter as opposed to building upon that knowledge to attain this authority that you're talking about, right? I mean, this this wonderful etymological link be between the author and the authority is is, is drawn out there and, and, and in all its fullness. So you see that I'm not just passing on facts. All facts at this level of study require also interpretation. Interpretation is done by an individual. That's me. Exactly. And I think uh, because we all work so much with um, multilingual writers, writers who are working in English as a subsequent language, I think it's these, these things become even more pressing um, because so much of the, the energy in that space is often devoted towards surface features of language. And one of the things that haunts students like that often is a fear of repetition, is a fear that because of whatever limitations they perceive um, in their grasp of English, that even if those don't really exist, uh, one of the ways that they really worry is, uh, one of the areas that they really worry about is that they will be repetitive somehow, right? That their grasp of their language isn't rich enough. Um, and in fact, that um, is rarely the problem. The problem is usually some sort of lack of authorial presence and that that repetition would actually be really solitary for the reader um, because it would help them know where they are. And if there are surface features that are, that are going to be a little bit puzzling at times, it's even more important 
that you emphasize um, the structural um, and authorial interventions that you are using. Um, and I think that uh, I really wanted that to come across because I'm hopeful that uh, even though this book isn't explicitly targeted um, at L2 writers, that it will be able to help them um, in the broader in their broader ambitions towards being academic writers. For sure. And they are so many, I mean, in the sciences and elsewhere, all throughout academia. I mean, English has become de facto, obviously, the communicative means for, for so many fields. And, and that means, you know, we also carry then that responsibility to be to be there and to make apparent to people who are coming from other languages what it is that they need to do so that their research, because at the end of the day, it is for the research to get out that we're using English and for no other purpose. And this this is, again, one of those things though, that you make clear in the book. I mean, you talk about this being a book that sort of gets beyond this sense of, right, Writing is just going to get picked up. It's one of those, as you say, inevitable byproducts of research competence. And it's it's actually not, though. Whether your first language is English or not, I mean, this, this activity and this engagement with writing is as complex as the subject matters themselves. Yeah, I think it's overwhelmingly rare for people to pick up writing. Uh, I think there's certain people with certain... Um, levels of literacy, certain kinds of sensitivity to language, people who have a certain natural ability to grasp genre um, as something that is something that they could replicate. Uh, But I think for most people, there's just no accuracy to the notion, uh, as I say in the book, that academic writing proficiency will come from a combination of being really good in your disciplinary work and working really hard, right? And that's all we're offering graduate students. Um, We are failing them. And I mean, nobody would leave, let's say, a biologist, right, alone who happened to be struggling in experimental methods or perhaps even with subject matter. And, and they certainly wouldn't be told, these, these struggling bio, this struggling biologist student, uh, that person certainly wouldn't be told, well, you're just doing it wrong somehow. I mean, certainly it would come down to there must be something that person doesn't know or hasn't yet comprehended about the subject matter. And in a sense, I think one of the messages coming out of your book is, well, we should treat actually academic writing in the same manner. Yeah. And I think what what wouldn't happen to your struggling biologists is they wouldn't be sent outside of the department to solve this very, you know, very integral problem, right? So this, the idea that you need help with your writing, you know, as you, I'm sure where you are also get referrals of that sort. Like my supervisor said, I, my grammar's bad, or I need some help with this or that. Um, And so that work is seen as somehow external to graduate education. And I think while I do, I am happy to embrace, you know, students coming to us and building their autonomy uh, by taking advantage of all the things the university has to offer. I think that treating writing as extradisciplinary um, in a way that's, as you say, methods courses are not, right? We teach people the 
core methods of their field. Um, but we don't, and we do more than we used to, but we don't necessarily teach writing. And when writing becomes a problem area, usually uh, the impulse is to send them outside the department for some kind of help, which um, really does contribute to the notion that I think on the part of students, that belief that they should already know how to do this, right? That they are being problematic somehow in their not knowing rather than um, the idea that because they don't know, their department maybe hasn't taught them enough about what to do. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I, th- I think that message was coming through. And I think the other message is, again, this idea that somehow writing is secondary, you know, that it's the research that counts. And I mean, I just said a few moments ago, we're doing this uh, work in English, we're using English as a means for the purpose of the research, but that doesn't actually make it possible conversely to say that the means that we've chosen to write in and the writing itself are insignificant. No, they're, they're as significant as the biology. I mean, just to carry on with our example there, I mean, biology without journal articles is nothing. And, and they know that, the, the graduate writers know that, but they perceive that as just another form of pressure on them rather than um, as evidence of some sort of gap in their education often. So they often do a lot of taking that, their deficiencies on board and personalizing them. And I tried to talk about that um, in chapter nine when I talk about productivity challenges. Um, it can be very harmful for our productivity to feel like we're doing it wrong. We're doing it badly. We we are somehow uniquely unsuited for this. Uh, and that, that uh, in addition to not doing the teaching, I think that messaging happens when writing is seen as something you should um, go and sort out on your own somehow. That's an interesting chapter. Um, maybe we can just stay right in it there, uh, chapter nine, when you, you talk about productivity. Again, one of the nuances or novel perspectives that I found, and uh, I do certainly try to keep up on the work that's being done in graduate writing and so on, so I, I believe it truly is, is this idea of, let's say, the various factors involved in understanding what productivity actually is right? That's a very good starting place in in the chapter. But then after that, also talking about, okay, so if you want to address your own productivity, you're going to have to kind of do to do two things, you're going to have to consciously approach it from a few different perspectives, which you which you name, and I'll, I'll list them off in a moment. But you're also when listening to people's advice, going to have to adapt that advice, take it with the proverbial grain of salt, because your real mindset should be the experimenter mindset. And all of this, I, I found myself putting exclamation points in, in, in the margins again and again. I mean, this, this is great stuff. I, it, this chapter was, in some sense, easy to write because it was all, you know, kind of pent up. Like, I find it so frustrating um, to see people feeling... Um, as, as though their productivity challenges are really a referendum on their commitment. And um, I, in my experience, that is just not true. Um, commitment is not, does not equal productivity. And um, it's, so I think I really wanted to do two things, as you say in the chapter. I both wanted to explore productivity as an idea, right? Because I think there's a lot of people who find it somewhat off-putting as a framework. Um, It's sort of connection to product and um, it has a kind of um, capitalist kind of 
echo to it and some people don't like it. And there's a fair amount of talk from early career researchers about, you know, slow academia and ideas like that. Um, and while I embrace all those ideas, I don't think they work particularly well for graduate writers who stand to benefit most um, from being productive. Their productivity is not um, in most instances. In some lab contexts, that can be a little bit different. But by and large, finishing their degree uh, is a thing that will um, only benefit the graduate student. Um, and so productivity should not be discarded as a framework for this population because um, that can lead to, um, I think, an unhealthy cycle of feeling bad and not getting your work done. And that I think that's not helpful. But also, productivity shouldn't be seen as something you can borrow from a business school um, and just, you know, just with a few little hacks, get things better. So I really want people to understand the unique, you know, psychological and emotional and practical circumstances of graduate students and use all of those, that sort of self-awareness of yourself um, to, as you say, then experiment with a whole bunch of different ideas. Um, and so I think that, um, you know, graduate students are not always really open to experimentation in this area, which I think um, comes from a vulnerability on their part, right? They're feeling not good at this. Um, and when you feel not good at something, you don't necessarily feel like uh, that you have the freedom and the energy to try a bunch of stuff. You feel like you got to stick with the few things that are working for you. Uh, and so I wanted this chapter to progress from here's some of the things to think about broadly as affecting graduate writing, and then really honing in on the notion that you're going to have to experiment with what works for you, the type of writer and thinker and person that you are, um, and then move into the actual challenges that I see, and they may not be right for everybody, but that I see as persistently affecting people's ability to be productive, and then suggest some actual strategies that you can reject uh, or accept or modify. Uh, and as I say in the preface of the book, I, we all um, are very aware when we teach writing that we need to be open to the possibility that everything is different for each person. Uh, and so I, I really had to overcome my urge to in every, at every point in the book to say, but maybe this isn't true for you, right? Cause that would have been really tedious. Uh, and instead I tried to opt for a fairly strong formulation of various ideas and hope that each person felt like as they read it, they feel like I'm going to try that. I don't like the sound of that. I might do that this way. I might try that a different way. Um, understanding what I meant by the idea and then modifying it for their own context. Because I think one size fits all advice, um, even if it comes from within ac academia, isn't going to work. No, I think that message definitely comes through. I mean, especially with the um, introduction where you frame this as a new mindset and open people into okay, now you need to really start thinking about your writing and you need to start thinking about how you do it and how it turns out for you and how you revise it. And, and of course, uh, an entire middle section of the book, which we'll certainly touch upon what sort of sentences you make, how you, how you put your commas into them and so on. I mean, everything's in there, um, but you certainly open up uh, people's 
views and perspectives. I mean, it's, 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 it's a, it's a, it's an approach that makes a lot of sense to me because that's, I find that just so much more effective. It's, it's really just taking writing completely seriously. I mean, you say that at the beginning of the book, you say my stance is, I'm quoting more or less that my stance is one of respect for graduate students. So you've got people in front of you and you're taking them seriously and enthusiasm for the enterprise of academic writing. And I think passing on that enthusiasm, this has been my experience anyway, in sessions where you're working with somebody and allowing them to realize that, you know, these lines that you're putting down right now are going to get cited by somebody else and they are contributing to our understanding of this chemical bond and this and that way under these circumstances. You know, if you, if you start to realize what it is that you're actually doing there, creating yeah, then I think you can really get people on board with making up their own experimental possibilities and solutions to problems in writing. That's the hope. The hope is that people can take this framework and uh, and adapt it. And and that's why the, the all these charts are at the back of the book, but they're also on the press's website uh, in both PDF form, but also in Word document form. So people can download them and change them. Right. If they look at this productivity table and some of it really doesn't speak to them or they had a really great idea about how they wanted to schedule their writing time, they could rework it uh, and they could put that up on their bulletin board and it could be their approach to this. Uh, I think that, um, you know, as I've said over and over again, I think not having approach an approach is dangerous, uh, but I don't think that my approach is the right one for everyone, uh, but rather that I want to show an approach so that you can take that and think about what your approach might like to might need to be. We've said quite a lot about, let's say, more general aspects in approaching writing and uh, viewing yourself as a researcher, writer, sort of putting these two words together in some sort of a compound. Um, Maybe it's worth zooming in on one, two, maybe even three different topics in the book. So a bit of a break here. The writing process is one that jumps out at me. Um, What you have to say about paragraphs is also one that jumps out at me. This is one of those really important topics that nobody seems to have a good answer for. I I think you have very good answers in there. Um, There's other areas as well. Maybe I'll also hand over to you if there was some section of the book more detailed that gave you great joy, you felt you made a particular advance, um, or one of the two I've mentioned. Uh, What do you say? If If I had to focus on one thing, I think in the book, it would probably be Um, the revision process. It would probably be uh, the way I've tried, and it wasn't perfectly successful, but the way I tried to lay out the revision process before chapter four, like before I moved into all the things about structure and then the two sentences chapters and then the momentum chapter, um, but to really create a sense that everything we know about writing all the things we know about how to construct paragraphs, how to use meta discourse, how to structure sentences, how to punctuate, how to build transitions, all of that is best understood in a practical manner 
as part of the revision process. And um, one of the things that I really didn't want the book to do was to get in people's heads in a way that made it harder for them to write, right? So if you, I didn't want anyone to read chapters four through seven um, and just feel like, oh my goodness, I'm not doing any of these things right. I wanted everyone to understand. And that's why I started with the principles, especially chapter two. I wanted everyone to understand that writing is messy, that writing is thinking. Writing is something um, that has to, has to be complicated. It cannot come out right. right. The only things that come out right when we're writing are things like, you know, grocery lists or things that we already really know. Um, and so for most of us, most of the time, um, we really do have to put words on the page. And I've known a few people who aren't as much like this, um, but I'm pretty comfortable with the generalization that most people need to see what they wrote in order to understand what they think. And that's really unsettling. And as I, I talk about that in chapter two, it's not a fun process. And if you don't understand that as a natural part of writing, it can be extremely unfun. Right? So if you think you should be writing better drafts, uh, if you think you should recognize on the page everything that's there as things you previously recalled thinking, um, if you if you have that sense of that sort of suite of beliefs about writing, re- approaching your own first drafts can be really, uh, really terrifying uh, because they are messy and you don't know what they're doing. Um, and so I really wanted to um, have this framework of revision that would be there in people's minds, what I summarize as, you know, go big, go small, go through. And then... Um, then go and do all the work of explaining the things you might be looking for when you're doing that, right? Because you can't revise without the expertise um, and then come back and lay out in chapter eight, the actual revision process, uh, which has those three big stages, tackling structure, tackling sentences and tackling movement, uh, but also has three other stages that I think round out the process um, that give some insight into how to manage a draft as it's coming together. And then some insight into the proof reading that we all need to do. Uh, And I think the really important stage of letting go of a draft uh, when you've done your best with it. Uh, And so that's probably, uh, if I could think of, if somebody were to read the book, that would be the part that I would hope that they would bookmark, that they would come back to, that they would print out and would put up on their bulletin board in some form so that they could actually think about when they get that first draft, which is incredibly potent and incredibly challenging, that they actually had a specific procedure to follow that could move it from where it is to where it needs to be. That certainly works. And, you know, incidentally, it's also a wonderful illustration of the points that we've been making about uh, repetition, I find, because it's true. You you say, well, these are the things that are going to matter in your writing. And then you give us a couple of chapters on all of them. And then you come back to all of them from a revision perspective. So, I mean, you know, cynically, you know, or dismissively, you might say, well, most of the book is repetition. No, well, yeah, <laughs> but in an extremely effective way, clearly. Um, so, I mean, that's just, you know, a shout out to people who are worried about repetition. I mean, there's repetition in this book that's going to teach you how to repeat correctly. Um, but yes, I, 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 I see very much what you're saying and, and saw in reading that um, this chapter eight is is crucial and 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 what you introduce it with in chapter two already before we go into the technicalities very well which for me was 
you know, it's one of those simple thoughts that you just never occurred, never occurred to you. You know, I mean, I am a firm believer in writing regularly, writing every day, writing messily and so on. But then you say, and that entails a commitment to revision. Now, you know, I've, I've, I've even had on this show, William Germano, who's written an entire book about revision. So many great things whom you cite as well. Um, the only writing that counts. Uh, but this idea that the one entails the other, that in that approach to thinking through your writing, you are also committing to a revision process and then you show us how to do it. That I found was, yeah, great. Thanks for thinking that through to the end. And, and I, what I wanted to avoid was people feeling inefficient, right? That's a huge part of what I hear. Either I hear from people that they hate their writing, like they hate the writing they come up with, um, or I hear that their writing is okay, but the process is absurd, right? It takes them this many drafts, or they've worked on it for this many months. Uh, and I really want people to feel that, you know, that may be sad to hear, but that's not unusual, right? That that iterative nature of um, communicating conceptually complicated material is, uh, is pretty inevitable. Um, and uh, if, if you're doing the work, if you're really thinking, um, then you're going to write poorly when you first try try doing it. Um, and that can mean all sorts of things, um, writing poorly. Um, but it, it means you maybe you're not attending to all the details, you're just pushing ahead. I talk a lot about how much I think a first draft is powerful for a writer. Um, so I do recommend letting yourself get there. Um, not editing too much as you go, not judging yourself too much uh, before you've had a chance to actually evaluate something that has a beginning and middle and end. Um, and um, we can talk about reverse outlining if you want, but that process is, um, is really based on the notion that something is a complete draft. And um, so many people work on their writing um, in bits, right? So they're, they're, they're trying to get this first section right, and they're working on it, and they're working on it, and they're working on it. And it's, um, it, it doesn't, it, you can't do that work with you don't know what you're introducing, right? You should have an introduction. I believe strongly that people should write introductions first, uh, but you shouldn't polish introductions first. A, a student once used the image after I explained this to them, it sounded like making an Ikea table, right? So you shouldn't, uh, you don't want to tighten one leg too much before you've started to tighten the other legs because um, you won't be able to make those connections, right? So you want to tighten it a little bit and then you want to move to the next part and tighten it a little bit and gradually round and round, um, you'll get something solid. Uh, so I really wanted people, I really want people to feel that um, when you write that dreadful first draft, you haven't failed or you haven't um, done something inefficient. I think efficiency really bedevils the writing, people's attitudes towards writing. I think you really need to see that as just just a beautiful starting point for all the work that needs to happen. And in that chapter, you, you talk a lot about time. And it got to the point where I was starting to think, yeah, writing is actually a little bit like time travel. You know, because when you go back to that first draft after, say, two weeks, four weeks, I don't know, however long, however long you wait. Um, and this is also um, the perennial good advice. One of the points of advice that you just make baldly and plainly and say, just accept it is, you know, allow time to elapse. 
and I think that that, that is one of those basic physics rules of writing that it, it, it really does help. <laughs> um, but but the interesting thing is, is how does this align with, you know, graduate students, or I have to say, even more senior researchers, <laughs> uh, um, let's say perception of, of the writing in the entire research project. I mean, for instance, in the sciences and in, in the natural sciences, uh, you, you're so, de- you're so dependent on results. And I'll often, I work with scientists typically, and, and the, you'll often get, well, you know, I mean, the results are pending. There's so many uncertainties to be writing now would, would be, well, to use your word, inefficient, a waste of time and so on. And it's, it, it takes some doing to tell them, yeah, but you're losing time now. If you're not thinking about what the results that may come in may mean or what the results that at least have come in, what they mean. Yeah. And I think I don't work with undergraduates, but I think if I did, I would hone that message slightly because just due to realism, like undergraduates are not going to leave their writing sit for a long time. Um, But I think the reason I feel somewhat comfortable making it as a more blunt piece of advice is, um, partly I think it's, it really is true, but also I think that it um, is more possible um, in graduate student life, right? There is a possibility of um, building revision and resting time into a schedule. Uh, as you say, there, there could be complications with the dynamics in your lab and all sorts of other things. But given the way that graduate students produce longer texts, they work with supervisors, they work with co-authors. If you have a mindset that writing needs to sit, um, you can build that into the schedule in ways um, that can be really uh, useful for your writing. I think it is possible to do. It's not easy to do. But if you think that you're, if you think of writing as such a fraught activity that you only can do it at the last minute, it's only done under duress, then you're, then you're shutting yourself off from that possibility uh, that you could, for no, with no extra effort on your part, simply create different deadlines for yourself. Right? You're not necessarily going to spend more time on the piece of writing. You're just going to say, I'm going to have it done by this time. Whatever problems it has, it has, but I'm going to finish it. I'm going to get a full draft of some sort, and I'm going to leave it for a minute uh, while I do something else. And uh, I think that uh, because I'm not advocating necessarily doing more, I'm just advocating doing it a little bit differently, my hope is that people will try that. Yeah, I would hope so. And it's something that I do also try to encourage in my practice because um, with with uh, scientists, because it's not in very many scientists blood, let's say. Yeah. <laughs> and and in certain fields where deadlines uh, come fast and, and and repeatedly throughout the year, it is sometimes even challenging to, you know, in, incorporate it into the normal research process. And yet what I try to argue is very similar to what you're saying that it's like you're doing sloppy experiments. You know, it's like you're cutting corners because without that time elapsed, you are not, it's almost like you're not applying your full brain to the problem because that writing has that, this is why I said time travel earlier, this this, this sort of memory effect there. You know, that's what I thought. My thoughts have changed because of the thoughts that I haven't recorded in the meantime, because of the results now that I've seen, because of this other article I've read, and I can hone it all once more or even 
recognize a relation there in the data which I hadn't seen. Exactly. I, I think that um, if people can start to see that, um, the engagement feature, um, and I think that also what you're describing, Daniel, also leads into the notion that we need to stop revising at a point and share our work with other people. Um, because the notion that we will get it exactly right um, before we share it um, can often be a sort of um, a, a fairly negative cycle for people. Um, and I think if we can start to think more about you know, just post-publication review feedback, you can tell me things about my book that didn't work, uh, and I can take that on board and think about... Um, things I might do differently another time. And um, like there is a moment in the life cycle of a text when it really does need to leave you. Um, and my real hope with this revision process is not that people will use it to create perfect texts because those don't exist. I just found a horrifying typo in the book while I was getting ready for this interview. Uh, but it because following a revision process um, does, I hope, give you the confidence to say, I have done enough. I haven't done everything. I haven't done it perfectly, but I've done enough. I've done, I've done all the things, right? I've really looked at it from this perspective of a strong, coherent structure, really good sentences, sentences that, are, that follow conventional punctuation patterns in ways that make it easy to read, sentences that have energy and that are parallel and, re and concise, um, and that I've thought about movement. I've thought about the reader's really, really important need to be able to move expeditiously through your text. Right? Your readers are not, as a rule, willing to spend the kind of time that a lot of the texts that we look at would require. Right? They want to be able to move freely through the text with a lot of explanation and guidance and signposting. Um, and then you want to be able to work on the technicalities and make sure everything is clean and professional. Um, that understanding all that means that you can say at some point, I'm going to share this piece of writing because I've done all the work. Uh, and I think if you can, if you can maybe swap that notion in, in the place of I'm going to share this document because it's awesome. Um, because that is a, you know, that's a bar that most of us never clear, right? Most of us never think, oh, this is so good. I can't wait to share it with everybody. Most of us feel really persistent anxiety about sharing our work, right? Really feeling like, but what if it's not right? What if there's mistakes? What if people laugh at me? What if this is just not the right way of doing work in my field? We all feel that way, you know, Pressing send on a, on a manuscript is one of the hardest psychological things that we do. Uh, and I want really people to think about um, that there are those risks for sure, but there's also wonderful rewards associated with it. Uh, it's also part of the ongoing process of doing the next thing better. Uh, and so my hope is having a revision process um, has the effect of making your text better, yes, but also allowing you um, to move away from a nebulous idea of what would be the actual best version of this text to being able to say, well, I did all the things that it needed to do to look at it, and now let's see what happens. And I think that properly describes the sort of genres that we're working in when, we, when we're working in um, academic writing. Um, there's very many of them. Some people also refer to different registers or text types. So if depending on which direction you're coming from, I think these terms would also very well describe what we're talking about. But but they are this idea that 
you're supposed to be re reaching some sort of level of perfection. I, I have the sense often that this is a holdover from the last time that very many students who've reached the graduate level and even people in postdoc positions or early career positions, it's a holdover from the last time that they were seriously working on text, which tends to have been introductory or even high school level literature classes, English class or the counterpart in their own language. And of course, you know, the, the view of text, the text types under discussion there, and so on, the purposes of those texts are, you know, I don't want to say diametrically opposed, but I'm going to say it, you know, diametrically opposed to what's going on in academic writing. I mean, this is, well, I guess what I'm trying to say is, that, I mean, this is one of those negative side products to text being neglected inside of the disciplines, because if it is, then people are going to go elsewhere the biologist, to get back to our example, is going to look elsewhere for definitions of good style, definitions of what is a good text, may also be having just those anxieties that you're describing, which he or she need not have, because really a good text in a biology context is one that contributes for now to a broad discussion about very complex research topics in, I don't know, genetics, right? That, that text has a permanency of an entirely different sort than, say, a short story in The New Yorker. And I, I, I hope that people will um, I, supplement my book. I, I have a list of further resources at the end, and I think it really is so helpful to interact with disciplinary accounts of writing. Uh, and and they're not all of them are are really good, but some of them are excellent. Um, you know, the, the Stephen Hurd book, I, I know you interviewed him recently for the second edition. I mean, I think that book just does something really, really unique uh, because it is... Um, he has a great understanding of writing, uh, but he also has a great understanding of the dynamics of science. Um, and so I think it's so helpful for people. And there's examples from across the disciplines uh, of different people who've attempted that engagement. Um, I really think that uh, that is also really useful in addition to some sort of like a writing guide of the, of the narrow sort that I've tried to create. I think people also need to really interact with people who are sensitive and interested in talking about what writing is like in their fields. And one of the sort of in, in my own work practice, uh, one of the thoughts that I've, I've thought through to the end and am now implementing here in Germany at a university is if text type, that's the way I like to think of it, it's genre, yeah, the same sort of thing. If, if the, so a literature review article in a certain field, a research article in a certain field, right? All of these start to differ significantly so that knowing how to write it well becomes harder and harder. You need more practice, you need more subject matter background, and so on. Um, the sorts of judgments that you need to make become finer and finer because the readers are expecting ever more specific things from the text and so on. So that, that's, that's sort of just also for listeners what we, I think, have in mind when we talk about text types. Um, one of the things that I've then sort of thought through to the end there in, in, in my own practice is well, it's not the case that scientists who know how to use these, so people's supervisors, the PIs, the, um, let's say, well-published uh, scientists, know exactly what it is that they're doing. They can do it, 
right? They can clearly publish these articles. They've published very many of them to great success, but it doesn't mean that they can pass that knowledge on in a way other than, well, just look over my shoulder and this is how it's done. It's my belief that actually, if you can cooperate with those supervisors as somebody who has a applied linguistics background, someone has a literature background or just a, a very solid background in text, can speed along this process, make things more explicit and so on. So it's basically the idea that if we're going to properly teach text type, we're really going to need some interdisciplinary cooperation at that level. Yeah, that makes all kinds of sense. I think that um, it requires a lot of you know educating up, like it requires a lot of helping people to understand uh, that what we do in writing centers and, and places like that is something other than you know, just work on the superficial features of texts um, in order to really help um, the people who are doing the disciplinary writing, but as you say, don't know how to talk about it, um, come together with those of us who know how to talk about text, but don't necessarily know all the ins and outs of any particular discipline. Um, and I think that um, those kind of you know, cross-institutional partnerships are real are difficult, but I think they're really important and interesting. And I think that what in the absence of that, I think what most of us who work with graduate writers or early career research or have learned to do is to work with the genres that they are of which they are unfamiliar with the content, but they've learned to be able to function at a high enough level with the genre itself that they can actually talk meaningfully about what's going on in the paper without ever understanding uh, the actual content of it. And that's, you know, I think for most of us, that's a skill we've honed over years. Um, but that it, it does, um, it often, I think, really surprises writers in some way. Like writers, you know, they'll often be quite apologetic about the writing that they're bringing to me. I'm sorry, this is really hard to understand. And they're often somewhat surprised um, that I'm, that the, the difficulty of understanding, which I totally don't do, the actual, you know, physics or chemistry or art history or whatever, um, but that I can still talk about the structure um, and the writing is often quite surprising to them. So I think we've, we've compensated for those lack of partnerships that you're talking about, uh, but that it would be really exciting to think more um, about building some of those. Yeah, and that's, that's uh, my, my experiment, the experiment that people are taking of me, <laughs> seems to be going uh, fairly well so far. Uh, I mean, I suppose it's, it's really just a completing of the circle. Just as you've said, I've I've gotten clearly the feedback from initial encounters. Yeah, but you're not a computer scientist. And um, I say, yes, no, I'm not, but I can read your texts. <laughs> I understand what's going on here. And, and, and I think it's a completing of the circle because as I was saying, the, the supervisors have explicit subject knowledge with implicit ways of how to communicate that. I have explicit knowledge of how to communicate things with Def deficit knowledge of the, let's say, of the actual subject matter. But I find that there is then a circle that's almost fully drawn in that in that sort of a collaboration. Yeah, and one of the things that I is very exciting about what I get to do is um, I teach free and non credit courses. Like they're, they're not part of people's programs, but they are courses that they register for and meet for multiple weeks, uh, and they are they tend to be interdisciplinary. Um, even if we divide people up a little bit by discipline, they're still pretty broad. And um, 
it, it's one of the most exciting things that happens in these contexts is that people recognize their own disciplinary expertise in a way that they were unable to see it when, they, when all they saw was their own discipline. But if you put an engineer in a classroom with an art historian and that art historian shares some of their writing, the engineer will immediately say, no, 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 that's not, you can't do that. Can you do that? I don't think you can do that. Right, Rachel, are you allowed to do that? Um, which allows me to say, first of all, yes, to, yes, this person is allowed to do it, and no, you might not want to. Um, but also, look what you know, right? Look what you understand about your own disciplinary communication. Um, and I love watching people recognize that they know so much more than they think they do, and it's just hard for them to see it when they're, you know, only within the confines of their own discipline. I think there's also quite a lot of, and this is something also that you bring up um, in chapter nine, it's quite a lot of, let's say, opportunity there for peer sorts of um, collaboration on writing at the graduate level. And I think that people surprise themselves in a similar way as to what they already know about their own particular genres as to what they already can do with writing. And I think very many of us, I mean, both you and I, have a teaching capacity. Very many of us probably have felt at times that through having taught something, we've really got a sense of what it was about. Uh, I think those moments in, 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 in this peer writing group type settings, if they're enabled properly, very much can come out of them for revision process, for understanding of content, even for all kinds of uh, you know, support, uh, emotional support as well in the writing process. Yeah, my my next project that I'm working on with two co-editors is a book about um, sociality as part of writing. What does that mean? And it's going to be an overview of a bunch of different uh, North American writing programs um, that use sociality in various ways to support writing. Um, so I think it's I think it's a really exciting area to think more about. Um, you know, I do a lot of writing instruction, a lot of teaching of writing, um, but I'm really interested in thinking more about the facilitation of writing, um, bringing people together from different disciplines or within disciplines and facilitating their abilities um, to learn from each other and share um share what they know, share what they don't know, um, derive, you know, emotional support as well as practical support from other people who are doing some of the same things that they're doing. Maybe to wrap up, I would like to return us back to the book once more. So people have that also again on their minds. Um, the book has its origins, if I'm not mistaken, actually in a blog. And I will certainly link to the blog in the show notes so that people can uh, continue to follow your writing about writing. One of the features that I'm guessing, and please correct me if I'm wrong, that I'm guessing grew out of the blog were the little interrupting myself blocks, <laughs> which, which I found fantastic. Um, there were so many different little tidbits in there. Um, neologisms like manuscripts for where you put things that don't fit into the final version. Um, you talk about display work. There's just so many of them. The display work being yeah, so a sort of way of contextualizing your work. I mean, I'm talking to people who already understand this. How do I talk to them? Um, but just so many interesting related associated topics dropping in throughout the book that way could am i right in my guess maybe and and could you just speak to that feature of the book please 
Sure. So yeah, definitely. The def- the book is definitely based in the blog. Like the blog has this basic structure, right? The basic notion of um, principles and strategies and productivity advice, like that's all there um, over the last um, 12 years uh, of blogging. I have talked about all those things and it's a really, I think it was a pretty natural progression, right? Like I thought the blog came about um, when I'd been doing this work um, for about four years and I realized that just what I was doing in the classroom was limiting a little bit. Like I wasn't, I was being very responsive um, rather than having the opportunity um, to really anticipate what people would need to know, right? So I felt like I was doing good work when people asked me questions. I had good ideas and responding to them, but I didn't want them to only get that. I wanted them to get more um, digestible bits of things that they could know about writing. And so, uh, I mean, I was doing some of that in my in classroom in the classroom, of course. But writing pushes you, right? When you have to write something, you you do naturally develop something with more internal coherence. And um, that was so useful to me. And so for a long time, the blog, which is episodic, as all blogs are, and cross-connected because of links, um, really did a lot of that work for me. It improved my teaching greatly. It was a resource that I could give to my students to carry on learning about things. And then over time, I thought, well, I really want to take this another step. I want to take what is episodic and sort of... um, diffuse in the way of, you know, posts, hundreds of posts over time. Um, and I want to turn it into an actual system, right? I want to make it into something which, as you say, may be, a, you know, a hangover of my philosophy training. Uh, but I wanted to, uh, as I've said, both provide a system for thinking about writing, um, but also to do through that to convince people that a system would be a really good idea, right? Whether this one or someone else's, but that, a, that systematicity is a really good feature, of a writing process. Um, So I wanted to move past the episodic and responsive nature of my teaching and my blogging and to create something that would um, have more internal coherence. And so I did absolutely build the book out of the blog, right? I cut and paste some things. Um, As so often happens with cutting and pasting, that didn't work. Um, So the book is... um, almost entirely rewritten. Uh, There's probably a few sentences in there that were originally on the blog. And then, as you say, um, some of those interjections um, that were really kind of a cheat on my part, right? They're really a way of keeping a really neat and I hoped elegant structure throughout the book and yet getting to talk about stuff that I thought would be interesting and fun for people to know about. Um, So the interruptions were really a fun part and they totally do connect back to the blog. Some of them were originally blog posts and I just, I shortened them down so that they wouldn't be a long interruption. They'd be a short interruption. Um, but that's, that is really the relationship with the blog. And, you know, of course it's important to me that there's people all around the world who may not have access to books, may not have access to buying a book, whose library may not do, you know, so the blog is free and it's there. Um, and it's, um, you know, has, has an archive, it has a well-explained uh, archive. And so if somebody find, listens to this and is finding this interesting and it isn't possible for them to buy the book, they can get um, a lot of the ideas here um, in a slightly less coherent form on the blog. They have to do a little more work themselves, um, but it's important to me um, that that resource uh, remain free and available. I think the the one of the 
real things that I would encourage people to do is to also visit the blog to see what you're writing about now. <laughs> and the and the book itself is 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 it's worth its while for any graduate writer, and I would also argue for very many early career researchers as well, from my own experience. So, a high recommendation on my part for sure. Thank, thank you very much for that, Rachel. That is Rachel Cayley, and her book is Thriving as a Graduate Writer. And as you've just heard, she also has a blog, which will be linked in the show notes. This is goodbye from me to Rachel. Goodbye. Thank you so much, Daniel. I really enjoyed our conversation. And this is goodbye to all of you. Bye-bye, and until next time here on Scholarly Communication. <laughs>